From the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, this is Modern Media. We've taught reality TV as a language now that people get what they're supposed to do and they give it to you before you even said anything. Reality TV isn't so much a medium as a way we are taught to speak and a way to think. And Donald was the first guy to tap into that. My guest today is Riley Ray Robbins. Riley is a VP of Development at Backroads Entertainment, a reality TV producer, and a former Deputy Director of Communications for California Governor Jerry Brown. I want to start with something, actually, um, that connects the politics and uh, reality TV together. Sure. Uh, You've written uh, in one place that Donald Trump is in some ways uh, very much a product, his presidency, I should say, is very much a product of reality television. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit. Well, you know, it's funny is that um, for us in in the reality TV side of the business, as we were watching the political stuff happen and... People kept saying things like, oh, this is ridiculous. He's not a real candidate, what have you. We're all like he's doing exactly what he needs to win a reality show in every level. Um, He could have just walked on stage at that first debate and said, I'm not here to make friends and been 100% in on reality TV. He didn't, but he basically did everything but that. Everything including a showmance with uh, Governor Chris Christie and treating every single episode, and I mean – think about it in terms of debates, like it was a reality show. And that's to say, I am obsessed with this character at this time in this thing. You're not – history doesn't matter in reality shows. What happened on the last episode of Real Housewives, except informing the fight that's going to happen this week on Real Housewives, doesn't matter. And that's the beauty of what he was doing in terms of how he's approaching it. He came in with catchphrases. They're still trying to defend records and say things in ways that uh, will be – part of a a volume of their political discourse. He's saying little Marco and crooked Hillary. And it's it's killing for the people who appreciate that. And I think part of this also is it's really tough. It's a cognitive dissonance when MSNBC and sometimes CNBC were saying things like he's not a real candidate. He doesn't count. He's awful. It's like, right. But NBC said he was the cartoon cutout of a successful businessman for 12, 14 seasons of The Apprentice. It's a little tough to say that that branding doesn't matter now. And, you know, the whole time that it was happening, I kept thinking the reason that this is going to go much further than anybody thought is because he is playing a reality game and everyone else is playing a political game, you know, and in the end – We haven't, as a culture, been teaching people how to play a political game for a while. Political game is kind of stagnated. It's run into partisanship, and people are just throwing up their hands. They're not playing this game of understanding it that way. But we have taught everybody how to answer a question in a form where you're saying the question back like it's a reality TV interview. Once upon a time when I used to do interviews with people, I'd say, so uh, how do you feel about fat, and why are you having so many problems with it? I feel good and uh, it's tough for me to lose weight. It's like, could you answer in form of a question? And so they'd say, oh, you know, my problem with fat is it's really hard and it's tough for me to lose it and I feel good about my chances of beating it. I don't have to do that anymore. When I give somebody a question, they automatically know to phrase it back. We've taught reality TV as a language now that people get 
what they're supposed to do and they give it to you before you even said anything. Reality TV isn't so much a medium as a way we are taught to speak and a way to to think. And Donald was the first guy to tap into that. That's really interesting because I, I think so much of our political discourse has been about like, exactly as you said. He's not real. He's, he, we can't take him seriously. Listen to him on Twitter. It's, it's ridiculous. And yet he was playing exactly the game he needed to play to win. And so you know, you mentioned at one point in the in the thing I read, um, you know, uh, Jeb Bush and the others spent too much time playing to the judges. Yeah. And Trump was playing to the to the voters. Right. You know, they were trying to win a debate. In terms of, hey, here are the three guys asking the questions. And if you were scoring a debate at home as a judge, yeah, obviously in every case he wasn't doing well. But if you were somebody who normally watches these things, bored out of their mind, he was knocking it out of the park because he made these things entertaining. And every time he made it entertaining, it made the next one more pressure to be just as entertaining. But for the most part, it kept delivering. It kept delivering because it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. I mean if you think about past debates – you have one moment if you're lucky. Lloyd yeah. Benson uh, saying, you're no Jack Kennedy. That's it. You had that one moment. It's like, ooh, that was the moment. That's the thing we could talk about. Yeah. Pick the thing that you could talk about at a Trump debate. I don't know. I got 40 to pick from. Which one do you want to go with? <laughs> you know, and, and that was the beauty of this thing is that he took a time yeah. normally in the political system where nothing happens. I mean if you look at the summer before an election – it's as boring as it gets. It's yeah. a whole bunch of people is- issuing milk toast statements, halfway saying things, testing the waters, political exploration. He just slid down a giant golden escalator and said, blam, I'm going to make this fun and engaging and you're going to love me. And if you didn't, that's fine. You hated him. But here's the thing, the Howard Stern effect. Uh, watch private parts. The average person who loves Howard Stern listens for an hour and a half. The average person who hates Howard Stern listens for two hours. And and all he had to do was continue to dominate that thing at the same time that, you know, the rest of the Republican uh, field couldn't make up their mind who it was going to be. Yeah. And by the time they did, it was too late. Thirty percent of the Republican field in terms of voters has always been low information voters. And that's they've always generally gone along with the pack. This is the first time that they got ahead of it and picked something on their own. You know, yeah. they didn't they didn't normally do this but this time they knew their pony they could recognize that guy and while everybody else the other 60 percent, is deciding which of the 42 guys who are running they're going to go with that one third just kept going forward and once you win the first one and then you win the second one and then it's super tuesday hey it's too late to turn back now yeah wow so Donald Trump is often seen as the scourge of the presidency, right? This is the this is the low point, right? In the same way that reality television is often talked about, the discourse around it tends to be it's the scourge of television, right? How would you respond to critics? You're a reality TV producer. How would you respond to critics? Well, I think reality is obviously judged by whatever the worst thing that you've seen in reality is. You know, if you've watched some British special on world's most interesting tumors, I'm sure you could think badly about reality TV. But reality TV is still something like Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. Uh, reality TV is a place where you could see, you know, legitimately people who have not been on TV before and haven't been represented. I mean, uh, this is one that is tougher for people to get their head around. But if you look at minority representation on TV in general before the advent of reality TV, you're talking about a sliver. After reality TV, you got whole channels. You totally up the number of total characters who are people of color on yeah. TV in general. And you wouldn't have seen them unless they were represented in reality TV. 
And when you can be poo-pooing about it and saying, oh, well, you know, uh, that's th- not the people we want to have on. That's not the right view. You know, uh, Flavor of Love or Bad Girls Club is, is bringing down it. Well, yeah, it, maybe. But also that's characters who were on TV who 10 minutes ago who weren't on TV. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing representations that just haven't been there up till now. And, and by the way, for every one of those, you're also seeing that as the opening door to finally getting characters in who maybe are different. And now we have our first black bachelorette. You know, ultimately, reality TV, uh, the curse of it is it could be almost anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the reason it continues to live at every level when they're like, oh, this is the demise of competition reality TV. It's like, well, let me introduce you to survival reality TV. <laughs> oh, this is the demise of survival reality TV. Well, let me introduce you to lifestyle reality TV. You're going to fall in love with flip or flop and cake wars. Well, that's starting to tone off because we're spending less time in our houses. Well, you're going to be in whatever the next thing is because reality TV is that canary in the coal mine that can get to the meme before anybody else. I mean, and, and also, you know, real, reality television is so often put up against. You know, we're in this. We're in another golden age of television with with all the cable networks and and now the streaming services getting into original programming. We've got Transparent. We've got Breaking Bad. We've got all these wonderful shows. And then reality TV is put up against that as. Well, the the the, the, you know, the other side of that coin, but is there a way in which reality TV and that high quality television are sort of connected? This is antelopes and jaguars, all right. At the end of the day, uh, we had a lot of very slow antelopes back in the eighties and nineties. You know, not particularly good shows. Uh, Friends was great. Every other show that they programmed after Friends was not good. The Single Guy with Jonathan Silverman, Central Park or Perk, it was. Something where uh, they had a, a, a cafe filled with wacky characters that ran for one season. You know, all of them were horrible. And the reason they could be horrible is because, well, it's, you're going to watch Thursday night and you're just going to push through. Yeah. You know, you'll wait until Friends is over and Seinfeld starts. Yeah. So you're not going to change the channel. You'll stick with this awful show. But if it doesn't work, we'll put another one on. And then reality TV comes along. Yeah. And reality TV makes all of these scripted shows have to up their game. There's a really great story about how the creator of Ally McBeal uh, was watching um, – uh, he had his law show, a new law show, a different kind of show, debuting against Joe Millionaire, which, you know, stand in the face of a thunderstorm. You're going to get hit in the face with lightning. <laughs> um, he was watching it with his wife uh, and uh, his wife was sitting next to him on the couch. He's like, I need to see this show that's beating mine. Halfway through, this is horrible. I want to turn it off. His wife's like, don't you dare. This is great. At which point he's like, I get it. This has a value and a context that we have to deal with now because at the end of the day, if you make mediocre TV, I can make a mediocre reality show that will do almost the same number for way less money. So get better. But in a way, as scripted TV has gotten so much better and frankly, the prices have finally come down in a way that makes sense. You know, If you're a great actor – if you're Brian Cranston and anybody has only ever known you as the dad from Malcolm in the Middle, you'll roll the dice for the greatest role you've ever seen in Walter White, yeah. even if the money is not great and it's on a channel that, frankly, until that point just had Mad Men. Why? Because you know the long-term values there and there's a reason for it. Um, and so the numbers are more competitive than they've ever been on networks that used to not be. But at that, in the end, when those shows are great – it makes reality TV better too. We have to get better. We have to give you shows that show you things you haven't seen before. I will say for the most part, if you look at even any of the genres out there like lifestyle, lifestyle's gotten so much better. Once upon a time, 
House Hunters was basically the top of the key. It was here's three people looking at or two people looking at three houses, one of whom has horrible paint, one of which has wainscoting that's going to have to be pulled out, and then they picked the first house. And we kind of knew it, but we watched it. Now we have great shows, including Flip or Flop, or uh, uh, you know, there's a great new show being produced by a DePaul alum, Angela Tarrant. I'm going to throw a little shout out to her mm-hmm. uh, called uh, Hometown. It is fixer upper. Way better. I mean, I like Fixer Upper. I love these two. And that comes because you can't keep delivering the same thing the same way. You have to keep adjusting. The beauty of reality TV is we can continue to adjust. And some of it is us adjusting and some of it is reflecting society faster than, frankly, scripted can get there. Yeah. What are the big challenges facing reality TV right now, do you think? Well, number one is the skinny bundle. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we are watching whole networks that grew up during the time of everybody's got cable. Let's have a thousand networks (laughs) to millennials going, yeah, I'm just going to stream that. So uh, they've got to get more competitive on their pricing, which means you'll go to skinny bundles. means a lot of those channels that you didn't watch that much, which bought a lot of reality TV are going away. Um, You also have, you know, the issue of international programming becoming a little bit more competitive. And I think some of those international markets, uh, are interested in our shows, but we have to reflect a format that could be good for it. So if our plan was always, hey, let's do American Idol and then just sell Swedish Idol afterwards, that still kind of works. But it's also got to be – Swedish Idol has got to reflect a little bit of like what Sweden's about. And so you need more flexible formats. So that's got to be built into the secret sauce of what shows you're developing. And, you know, at the end of the day, the other thing about reality TV, it's always been the challenge of reality TV. And I think now it just it happens faster. We process things faster through it because once you've seen it, mm-hmm. you've kind of seen it. Yeah. You know, like you, you can do one season of shock. But next season, unless you're going to murder a guy live on TV, you know, it's going to be really tough to do a second season of it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, though, there's a lot of things that you could point to as reality TV evolving for it. I mean, up till recently, if you had a really good murder, that was maybe one third, maybe a whole episode of an investigation discovery channel show. Now it's making a murderer. Now it's the jinx. Now it's a high end, super intensive, really stylish look at a thing that you're just deep in. I mean, the, the thing that really kicked all this off was not a reality show, but it should have been, was Serial. Yeah, I was just thinking that actually. And the reason, because here's somebody like, who's investigating a murder like you would because you don't know enough about this and she doesn't know about it and you're learning the way to figure it out the whole time. And at the end, it's like, hey, do we have a clear-cut answer? No, we don't. I still don't know what's going on. Yeah, and actually, you know, that's a really good analogy because as I'm thinking about Serial, so Serial is this amazing, compelling story. It's happening in real time pretty much. And then they go to season two and it doesn't have – they can't repeat the format – so they go to something else that's already happened and they're sort of backfilling it and it's not as compelling. And then th- now they've turned to another version of it, which is S-Town, right? Yeah. Which is now the, the sort of hook there seems to be, I can't believe this is true. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, look, I think S-Town was a little bit of um, them going, here's what we missed in Serial. Serial was us not understanding what people loved about the first season. Yeah. And their take in that was our story is about Adnan, right? Yeah. And then they said, oh, our story is about Bo, right? But that's not what it was about. Yeah. It was about this world of going to school in the 90s in this particular area yeah. of a Washington, D.C. suburb 
and understanding all the unique stuff that was part of that world. The world of a soldier is not a world. It's, it's, it's okay, but we know what that story is. We've seen it a thousand times. Yeah. And now we're just trying to figure out whether this guy was mentally ill or whether he was a traitor, what have you. Mm-hmm. It's still one person's story. It's not a world. S-Town is like, screw story, world. We're in on this whole damn city. <laughs> this place, there's more story you can throw at. And the beauty of it is if it works – you don't really have to kill yourself for S-Town Season 2 because that town's still there. Yeah. Until somebody sets fire to the whole thing, we're coming back to the same place for Season 2. Yeah, but it really just really impresses me that they were able to be so nimble with format and say, okay, we've got to, ch- we've got to change it up. People are, you know, if they can't, they just can't repeat the, the serial Season 1 thing again. They've got to sort of change it up. And that seems to be what reality show. I mean, you, you, you talked about a little bit, like, you've got these fairly narrow things. You've got competition. You've got... Well, there's uh, we probably got about twenty categories. We yeah, we, competition, game, yeah. dating, uh, lifestyle, paranormal, alternate history, uh, fitness, transformation. Mm-hmm. Like we have these. If you think about them as circles, yeah. whatever the thing is, you just throw whatever your general area is against it and see what pops. Yeah, and uh, for serial, you know, one of the reasons that they had the problem is that if your protagonist who you thought is Adnan, but in a way it's also our investigative reporter. Yeah. If she knows how to investigate it now, half of the story's gone. Yeah. You know, she knows the way that you're getting into it, and so she just doesn't feel as compelling as a character. Because before, she's somebody who's trying to retrace the way the car gets away from the school, and she screws it up the first time and has to go back and do it again. <laughs> yeah. Which is the most human thing they've done yeah. in the entire thing, and it just sold me in a hundred percent. You know, but this is where I say that reality TV processes through these things very yeah. quickly, and once you're done, you got to come up with the next thing. So why don't we take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our discussion with Riley Ray Robbins. The amount of ethical questions we can ask ourselves is overwhelming. But the thing is, everybody wrestles with questions about ethics. Some are easy to figure out. Should I murder someone? No, you shouldn't. But there are other questions that are more difficult to answer. I'm Andy Cullison, the host of Examining Ethics, director of the Prindle Institute for Ethics, and professor of philosophy. I'm Christian Weishart, a recovering art historian and stranger to the field of ethics. And I'm Sandra Burton. have no advanced degrees, but I did get an A- in Intro to Philosophy. We're an expert and two very non-experts wrestling our way through difficult ethical questions. But examining ethics isn't in the business of answering questions for you. We are in the business of giving our listeners an arsenal of tools. Tools that help answer the ethical questions we face all the time. Join us each month for discussions about many of the ethical questions, large and small, that we face in our everyday lives. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us at examiningethics.org. Expert or not, we'll give you something to wrestle with. Welcome back to Modern Media. We're talking today with Riley Ray Robbins. So what are... Well, maybe you've already answered this, but what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in your career in television that are really the game changers here? Well, I mean, I I talked about the stuff that affected reality TV, but, you know, I think beyond reality TV, because reality is just one part of it, that, you know, you've seen the demise of the big networks Mm -hmm. and that they've got their tentpole programs they're trying to hold on to. Um, You've watched the rise of um, the binge watching, which... More than anything else uh, is something that it lends itself to personal investment in in entertainment brands, mm-hmm. you know. And people think about it in the way like, oh, I watched all the Daredevils at once, which I did, uh, or I watched uh, uh, all of Making a Murder in a Weekend, yeah. you know. But it also applies 
frankly, to things that you're not thinking about that way. I mean, I have a friend who watches just she waits till flipper flops done with the season and then just watches a bunch of them in a row. Yeah, because it's something you could turn your head off. Have in the background, you kind of enjoy it, do other things. And she like looks forward to her flipper flop Saturday yeah. where she gets all the stuff done in her house, but she's kind of keeping an eye on it. And, you know, the second they're out of flipper flop, she's like, ah, what am I going to do now? And then you start scanning around for something else in that space. Yeah. And one of the things that you're going to start seeing now is analytics as programming. And that hasn't happened till now, up till recently. The way we do reality TV and the way we do scripted TV has always been basically the same, which is look at the ratings. If they're good, do more of that. If they're bad, do less of that. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the ball game. And there's a couple of guys who are interpreting it from years of experience. If I'm watching Flip or Flop on Netflix and the second I turn it off is when they're doing some construction stuff. If Netflix is doing their own one, they know that. Less construction, mm-hmm. more Thing between, you know, our two main people. And that kind of data is going to be open to everything. Like they now know if you're not in by the second second episode of a show, you're not binging the whole thing, right? That's one of the few things that Netflix has released. They've got more. Oh, yeah. Right? And let's go one step further. Let's say I'm watching a show I really liked, uh, uh, Man in the High Castle on Amazon. If I watch that on Amazon and then after the third episode – I then go on Amazon and look into food bars that could be used in an apocalypse. You know that there's something in that third episode that makes people think, hey, the Nazis are coming back. Yeah. Right? So they know that too. And what it's going to take is this new generation of programmers who could be both creative and analytical to read this data and create stuff that we're going to be, God help us, even more into. You know, and in a way, that's the thing that will fight what has been the decline of ratings because the decline of ratings is, you know, this large overall number with a network C like, Hey, we're not all watching something on Thursday night together anymore. Um, But on the other hand, they will have like this dedicated core who, when you show this thing, everybody buys Ziploc bags. Why? They don't know, but they got 50% of every Ziploc bag that gets sold that night. Yeah. You know, I I think right now they're getting smarter in the ones that are still sticking around. Like um, we television, was terrific at programming all of their stuff for 10 o'clock at night. Uh, after you've watched your uh, TGIT, thank God it's Thursday, which mm-hmm. is the Shonda Rhimes night, Yeah, they then program car- the Braxton shows to come on after that, saying, you're a black woman who just enjoyed two hours of TV. Isn't it time to slide into some reality TV with some sisters you love? And that's the way they program it. That's the way they marketed it. If you're smart, you're doing that. Yeah. And uh, I think – you're starting to see a, a jaguars and antelopes thing going on there in both the marketing and in the the general way that these things are promoted. Yeah, I mean, I think your 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 mention of Amazon is really important. I recently heard a thing about Amazon starting up um, bricks and mortar bookstores, right? Mm-hmm. And the the question was, well, why on earth would anybody do this? I mean, they're they're not going to make a lot of money off books. And the point was, Amazon's not interested. They're selling books is great. But the bricks-and-mortar bookstores are going to be connected to an analytics system where their phone – people's smartphones, because there's no prices on the books, their smartphones will tell them the price. And really what Amazon's trying to sell is data to other clients. Sure. Right? The Amazon has a, has, has, a, has a data management system that they're trying to sell. This bookstore is going to help them do that. And everything else on top is gravy. Oh, and then also, you know, at some level, it's a lab. Yeah. You know, it's a – 
it's a living, breathing, focus book group, you know, uh, that you can use to try out things. I mean, like yeah. Starbucks has been very good at this for years. You know, what you see right there before you pay has been changing forever and they know how they get the most mileage out of it. Yeah. Um, they kind of hit a wall because there's really only so much we could do with coffee. And frankly, <laughs> I need the coffee and I need to go. But if they can replicate some of that, they're going to have a regional way to kind of direct tastes and take trends on their face. Plus, frankly, you're basically going to be looking at giant retail areas that are going to die off soon because we're all buying stuff online. So they can have it for a nickel. It's not going to cost them much. And they get to have this you know, impression whenever you walk by it. One last question, then I'm going to let you go. <laughs> if you, because you, you, I've seen you pitch. I've seen you come up with ideas. If you're giving advice to somebody who's interested in getting into the reality TV business or the TV business in general, What's your biggest piece of advice to them? I mean, get a watch TV. I mean, uh, that's step one. So watch what's on. But then watch what was on. You know, get a list of the top 20 shows going back a couple of years. You know, in 1990, there was a top 20 show. What was it? Why did it matter? Read up about it. You know, people, it's so disposable in so many ways, but the institutional memory just fell off a cliff at some point. Now, upside to that is that I can steal from things that are 10 years old and no one knows where I took them from. Why? Because that kid just got a job and he's never watched television before. Hey, this sounds revolutionary. It does if you've never seen MASH. You haven't, have you? Well, then I've got more ideas for you. You know, um, So watch TV. Try and figure out what are the cycles and things that go through it. And the more you read about it, the more you understand. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've read the book Outliers. Yes. Uh, all right. So my 10,000 hour was TV. All right. I had watched 10,000 hours of TV before I went to college. Yeah. I used to watch from the second it came on in the morning with a farm report in New York. There was a farm report because upstate New York still got that TV channel uh, all the way until 2 in the morning when they ran the test patterns right after the national anthem. If you watch that much TV, two things happen. One, you have not read any books. Uh, and two, you know that the difference between Survivor and Gilligan's Island is just a laugh track. Battlestar Galactica. This has all happened before. This will all happen again. We only have so many stories to tell, but it's the way we tell them. And when you start seeing what those patterns are, you can literally just start thinking about things in the way that they're just pure entertainment platforms. We need to see a group of people do a thing together. Once you've told that story, you know how to tell all stories like that. We need to see one man give up his morals and do something, whether that's somebody who's doing a crime show or watching on Investigation Discovery or American History Channel – or not American History, American Heroes Channel, which is doing a lot more cop stuff, or Breaking Bad. It's the same story. You know, We know the things we love, and when you think about those things, they all have these same kinds of universals in it. And that's what I pitch. You know, I don't pitch a show. Whatever show I'm pitching is uh, – that's the detail today. But I'm pitching the general of the thing, whatever that show is. I did a whole class yesterday basically saying that all shows are about creating a world, asking a question, and the answer is your TV show. Right. So if I'm doing Deadliest Catch, it's the brutal sea, the the extreme north uh, – Northwest of America where you know a boat can capsize and a man can freeze in minutes. What men put themselves against the water? These men do. But why? To bring in $100 a fish and keep their boat floating for one more season? Who would do that? Why would they do that? 
And the answer is deadliest catch. You create a world, you ask a question about it, and then in comes the show. You create a thing that nobody knew about until five minutes ago. You create a need to know more about it, and then the answer is a show. That's for every single thing that you're going to do. And by the way, also works if you're selling yourself. You know, Hey, who's a guy who can come up with an idea on the spot, someone who can find a way to see a universal in all things? Is there somebody out there who could know what that thing is? Get people understand it in a way that's just a couple of quick sentences? Nah, there's nobody like that. Or maybe there is. My name's Riley Robbins. <laughs> oh, Riley Ray Robbins, thank you so much for joining us today. This has, been, this has been a terrific talk. Well, I'm glad I could help. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. And that'll do it for another edition of Modern Media. Our guest today has been Riley Ray Robbins, a VP of Development at Backroads Entertainment and a reality TV show producer. To find out more about Modern Media, you can visit our website at www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can also subscribe to Modern Media on Stitcher, Google Play, or iTunes. Modern Media is a production of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again next time. 